All right, if you would if you would open your Bibles to James again. James chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lost and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. As I, as I studied this passage this week, I, I really uh, had to face two issues. Um, the first issue is... Uh, that that this, these verses look like a puzzle whose pieces really don't fit together. Uh, again, look with me. Verse 1, he talks about quarrels and conflicts. Verse 2, lust and murder. Verse 3, wrong kinds of prayers. Verse 4, spiritual adultery and friendship with the world, enemy of God. In verse 5, he gives us a, we, we presume it's an Old Testament quote, but it's nowhere in our Old Testament. <laughs> he calls it scripture, but it's not in our Bibles. In verse 6, he deals with pride. And then verses 7 through 10, just kind of a, a hodgepodge of imperatives. <laughs> it just seems like, well, I, I said in my introduction that the, the whole book is like this in the sense that Sometimes it's hard to, uh, to discern any kind of uh, um, macro, uh, what, am I, what am I trying to say, theme. Uh, what's the theme of these verses? What, what is the unifying theme of these verses? It's like a bunch of pieces of a puzzle that, from a lot of different puzzles. They, they just don't seem to fit together. So um, I tentatively am approaching this text uh, with my best guess, as I and, and again, whenever we face this, we have to be careful that we don't impose upon the text um, an outline or a unity that's really not there. Now, you're you're probably not going to end up in heresy, but for doing that, but oftentimes preachers are guilty of this. 
because they want to have a slick outline or they want to be able to alliterate their sermons, you know, um, sometimes we impose upon the text a theme or an outline that isn't really there. So admittedly, I am tentative in doing so, but I'm going to be kind of operating from the standpoint of this, this deals with some, with some kind of relationships within the church. Relationships within the church. That was the first issue that I wrestled with. Is this, this just looks like a, a puzzle whose pieces don't fit together. And even, even the, the segues between the, between the verses are, uh, don't, don't seem to make sense to me. The second issue, though, and probably more importantly for us, was its relevance. Um, as we read through this, did, was there anything in here that reminded you of our church life? I didn't. I, I, I didn't see anything in here that really is a pressing issue in our church. Uh, so again, the, the issue of its relevance to us. That oftentimes we may preach and we may read things in the Bible that for whatever reason or for whatever season in life really doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't apply to us, it does apply to us, but it doesn't seem to be especially relevant or pressing at the time. And so admittedly, uh, at least from my perspective, these issues that we're going to deal with or this text that we're going to read this morning really isn't anything that, um, that we really are wrestling with or struggling with. But nevertheless, it's, it's good to listen to James. Uh, the, the, old, the old saying, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And really this, as we get to the central section, really addresses submission to God. And it's, it's curious to me how he has to, re, I guess, re, uh, reinforce this to people who are already believers. And, and, it, and it, it tells me as we get, we'll deal with this a little bit later in the text, it, it tells me that my initial submission to God through um, Saving faith through believing in him is not a once-for-all act. That it is something that I have to repeatedly do. I have to resubmit myself to him on a regular basis. So, that's kind of how I, just to give you insight into how I address this and uh, how I wrestle with this. Um, I think he's addressing the very fact that we need to submit to God in order to have peace in the church. So, let's go with that. Peace in the church is disturbed by personal passions. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasure, pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, I, I tied verses 1 through 3 together simply because of the word pleasures. We see pleasures in verse 1, and we see it again in verse 3, which forms, I guess, kind of an inclusio. Um, one through three, uh, personal pleasures. This, this word is hedonay. 
uh, it's from where we get the word hedonism. And what's hedonism? I mean, how would you? Selfishness, yeah. Eat, drink, and be merry. Self-pleasure. Uh, my, my, my single goal in life is, is, my pledge to, to, is my pleasures and my desires and my lusts. This, this is hedonism. And, and, and if there was ever a, a, an adjective of our culture, certainly we are hedonistic. Um, many people live for the sole desires to gratify their desires and gratify their pleasures. And in fact, he says that is the very source of quarrels and conflicts among you. This is where I get the church, the relationships in the church. He says this is the source of the quarrels and conflicts that you're experiencing in your, in your church bodies right now. And he says that they are a result of what? They are res- the, the, this external source of conflict, this external source of quarreling, the source of that stems from an internal war, he says. Look at the end of verse 1. The source is your pleasures that are waging war in your members. Now, in your members is just a metaphor for in your, in, it, within you. The, the, those, those, that war to gratify your personal pleasures and desires, is, as James says, is a war within us. Now, you may not be conscious of that. I may not be conscious of that in any given period of time. But, but I think clearly James is saying that when you have external conflict and external quarreling, really the source of that is, is some kind of internal war that's going on inside of us. And he said, in fact, it is our cravings in our pleasures. And the result, he says in verse 2, is you lust and do not have so you commit murder. Now, here's the interpretive question. Were they really committing murder? Well, I mean, I, I suppose one way you could say, well, Jim, that's what the text says. And maybe that is the case. Maybe they were actually, there were instances of some kind of quarrel or conflict or disagreement or dispute that ended up with someone killing somebody else. On the other hand, James, again, James draws a great deal from the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and from the Gospels and particularly from Jesus. And so um, keep your marker here and turn to Matthew chapter 5. So certainly I'm, I'm not ruling out that that's not the case because it, it, it seems to be pretty straightforward. Although it is certainly hard to, to grasp how a... A, a church of an assembly of committed believers can get in such a quarrel and such a conflict that they would end up murdering each other. But in chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court of murder, is, is, the, is the sense. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. 
And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fire, into the fiery hell. In the context, he's he is um, he's addressing these Pharisees who have taken all of these commandments and have lowered them to the standpoint of unless I physically commit them. If you were to read about adultery, for instance, he said the Pharisees say, "Well, I have not. We have not ever physically committed adultery." Which they, they were lowering the standards because Jesus says we sin not just in deed but in word and thought. He said, "If if you've lusted." Um, you've committed adultery already. So the context he's saying that anger is, is, is equivalent or I guess leads to and you can be held liable for as if you murdered your brother. So maybe that's the sense in which James was saying is that uh, back in James chapter 4 that, that, that the, the, the animosity and the angry um, spirit that you have towards your brother is murdering them. You murder your brother or it could be literal. It's interesting. It'd be interesting to know what was, um, at least on a surface level, what it was. That we know the source was their, the internal war within them. But it'd be interesting to know what, what, some, of the, what some of the issues were that, that was creating these conflicts and creating these quarrels. And James doesn't tell us, which means it really doesn't matter but he says, in fact, that this kind of craving and per- for personal pleasures and desires for your agenda, for my agenda, uh, creates conflict and quarreling. It disturbs the peace in the church. So James asserts that when there is external conflict, whenever you see external conflict in a church, you can, you can be assured um, that it's a result of a war that is raging internally. Um, how do we obtain then... What we are to desire, how are we to attain what we desire? Is it to, is to gnash our teeth and fight and quarrel uh, with, with one another? No. He says in verse 2, you do not have, or he says, uh, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So envy was a big part of it. And th- this does fit very, very well, by the way, with the, the, uh, the tension between rich and poor that we see throughout the book of James. Uh, and and this, this happens today. And, and this certainly I've seen in the church. Not necessarily in our church, but I've seen in the church is envy. Um, people have things that I don't have. They're able to do things I can't do. They're able to drive what I can't drive. And so I'm envious. Um, and James asserts that when we have this, uh, that it's because we... Um, we aren't obtaining it in the way that God has designed for us to obtain things. And in fact, he says, you lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You envy and can obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then he says, you don't have, not because they've taken it from you, not because it's, anything's been unfair, you don't have because you don't ask. Isn't that a novel concept? You don't have because you've never asked. I wonder how many times I've gone without, and, and let, let, let's, let's, let's set aside material things for a moment. Although I, I think it certainly includes that. He doesn't, he doesn't limit this. How many times have I gone without, without peace, for instance, because I didn't ask him for it, without wisdom, because I didn't ask him for it. And so I, I have this internal war within me. Instead of asking God for it, I wrestle and I wage war in my heart um, for these things. 
But then he says, there are times that you don't have because you don't ask. But he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. In fact, he further describes what those wrong motives are. So you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, I don't think he means by pleasures that um, I would like to have a I'd like to have a car that doesn't break down in Westminster. I would like to have a reliable transportation. I don't think he's, don't think he's talking about that. And he says wrong motives. or to, I, don't, I don't think he's talking about, I, I wish I had a, a, a larger home for my family, for my kids. I, I think the key word there is pleasures, because these are the pleasures that he used, the same word that he used in verse 1 about your pleasures, your lusts, your strong desires. When we lust after things. He says, when, when our motive is to, to lust after things that we may gratify our sinful pleasures, he will not hear, he will not provide, he will not give that. And here's the key. Um, some people will always have more than others. That's just the way. To, if the communists had their way, and let's say that even what they that they were sincere about what they were saying, they're not. But let's say that, and we were imagine hypothetically we could take all the wealth in the world, whether it's currency, uh, property, investments, everything, all the wealth as we have you define wealth, and evenly distribute between every man, woman, and child. How how long do you think it'd be before once again we'd see? Inequities? Why? Some people are smarter than others. Some people live in parts of the world where it's easier to, 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 to protect and to gain wealth. Some people have different worldviews. They, they view money differently. Some people live in, in, in nations that are corrupt. Uh, some people are risk takers. We call them entrepreneurs and and risk takers typically um, succeed more than, than, than those who don't risk. Uh, inequities does not, does not necessarily mean that something bad or wrong has happened. That's just the way it is. And we can envy and we can covet. And we should seek after those things to satisfy our desires. And if we do, we will never, I think James is saying, you'll never find satisfaction. That war will, will wage within you for the rest of your life. Because when and if, even if any of those desires are fulfilled, new desires are going to constantly pop up. Really, the only way to have peace in the church is when we have peace in our hearts and a contentment with what God in his wisdom has given to us. God in his grace has given to each one of us. Second of all, James says peace in the church is, dis- is disturbed by partnership with the world. I call this partnership in the world. These verses may in fact indicate where many of these passions, the, the, these, these passions for pleasure come from in the first place. In other words, where they find their incentive Uh, Look with me at verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, what do you think it means? What, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase, don't you know that friendship with the world? What is that? What does that look like to you? What, what comes to mind when you hear friendship with the world? Participation time. Okay, co- yeah, to get their approval so they'll like us. Dude, living in a way so they'll like us. Good. What else? I agree. Friendship with the world. What does that mean? What's that? We, yeah, we have to compromise to be friends. Yep, good. Yeah, uh, becoming like them. Uh, let me ask you this. What happens when you have... Well, how would, how would you describe when you have friendship with another person? What, what does that entail? Think of your a good friend. What makes them a good friend? Uh, very similar. Yeah, a lot of things in common. Not everything, but similar goals, uh, similar personalities maybe. Um, Similar likes, dislikes, similar activities. Uh, what's that? Objectives, yeah. Uh, so, so I think that, that that certainly applies. When we try to become a friend of the world and, and all of these things, I, I think that what he is saying is that you, you cannot be a – stop trying to be a friend of the world. Now, this is not licensed to be boorish – and to be insensitive, um, and to be unnecessarily cantankerous. But I see this so much in the evangelical church today. We so desperately want the church to think we're cool. We so desperately want the, 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 the world to think we're open-minded. We so desperately want the world to think that we are loving, kind people. And that's not all bad. But there's a very fine line between there's a very fine line between having a testimony to the church, which I hear all the time. It's that's a bad testimony when when we when we protest abortion, that's a bad testimony to the church. And when we speak out against homosexuality and LGBTQ, that's a bad testimony to the church. All they hear is what we're against. There's a fine line between a testimony and and then and. We, we do want to keep as much as lies within us a good testimony this, to this world of love and kindness, for sure, of forgiveness, for sure. But there's a fine line between that and compromise and being co-opted by our culture. To turn to turn to First John. Turn over a couple books to First John chapter two. First John chapter two, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And again, I, th- I think this gives really, 
the source and the incentive of many of the passions that, that struggle within us. The, the, these three categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Um, the, the, these are fleshly lusts that come from the flesh, not, not the lusting for the flesh, but the lusts that are produced by the flesh. He says uh, the, the, this, this, this gratuitous, to, to satisfy our just gratuitous consumption. He said, greed is never having enough. It is a sense of, of lusting after the flesh, of, of satisfying our, our base desires. In fact, he calls it the, the lust of the eyes. The, the, what, what would he mean? Our eyes, our eyeballs don't lust. What's, what's, the, what's the figure of speech he's, he's, looking, he's using here? The lust of the eyes, the, the lust that the eyes produce. I think, I think it's really what he's talking about in James, that when we see things, we want them, we lust after them. Isn't this what happened in, if you read Genesis 3, it said Eve saw, well, let's turn there, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6. Uh, the, the serpent has uh, deceived her. In verse 6, Genesis 3, 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was, delight, it was a delight to the eyes and that the trees were desirable to make one wise, she took of it from its fruit and ate and gave also, she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Again, when the woman saw when she saw it was a light to the eyes, this, this, this envy, this covetousness. And, of course, the boastful pride of life, um, the pride of our, of our stuff, what we own. Oftentimes, we measure people by what they own or how much they own. Or we measure ourselves by how much we owe. Oh, not O. Oh. <laughs> own. There's a big difference between O oh and own, right? Again, guys, we need to be careful that um, we don't allow our desire to have a good testimony to our world become friendship with the world, a desire to, to be their friend. The world, the world system really is what he's talking about. We don't want to become part of the world system. And I think if nothing else, this whole COVID thing, is, I think, has revealed those churches that probably, maybe not 100%, but most, most likely had become, had been co-opted by the world. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm not saying they don't love Jesus. I'm just saying that maybe, maybe their love for the world had become, uh, maybe they're too much, too much love for the world. I don't know. Again, there's a fine line between a good testimony, and compromise in becoming a friend of the world or with the world. James chapter 4. What's the result of that? How does God perceive friendship with the world? He says, you adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility or an enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
And what, in fact, what does Jesus say in Matthew 6? He says, you cannot serve, what? Two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. And in that context, is you cannot serve both God and money. And I think that James was drawing upon that when he says, you cannot serve both God and this world. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that you love Jesus and follow Jesus when you're in love with this world. And inevitably, that love will result in departure. Remember Demas the, the, in, in 2 Timothy says, Demas, having loved this present world, departed from us and went to Thessalonica. I think that if James would have gone further, he would have said not only is friendship with the world enmity with God, not only when you make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God, but when you make yourself a friend of the world, it will inevitably result in defection. He continues in verse 5. Or, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose... Again, here's this, he quotes scripture, but it's nowhere in our Bible. Now, I'm not saying that it's not scripture, but I think it's fascinating that apparently there were some inspired scriptures that were not recorded. Isn't that interesting? He says, this is scripture. Do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Notoriously difficult to translate. I can tell you all the reasons why, but it would bore you to death, probably. What do some of your translations say? How do some of your translations translate verse 5? New American Standard says, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Larry, can you, I know you just sat down. Verse 5, could you read your verse 5 for us? Okay, very similar. Is that, what, is that New King James? English Standard. Uh, Sal, could you read yours? Okay. Yeah, if, if you did a translation, you can hear, if you did a translation comparison, there's very little agreement over how to, how to interpret this. For instance, pneuma, the word for spirit, um, Greek doesn't translate proper na- well they, they proper names, but pneuma is not doesn't have capitals, so you have to always wrestle with is that human spirit or, or the Holy Spirit? We don't know. Um, here's my translation that I think makes best sense out of the context. I, again, I, 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 I'm not being dogmatic, <laughs> but I. God doesn't want to share his children with anyone. Doesn't the spirit that dwell with the, the spirit that dwells within us jealously long for us? God doesn't want to share us with anyone else. He doesn't want to share us with any other God. He's not willing to share us with the world. And, and this fits the context he's talking about adultery. He's talking about spiritual adultery. He's not willing for us to go seek after the things of the world that only he should be the one that provides. He's not willing to share us with the world. 
Think about that for a minute. God loves you so much. He jealously, in fact, the word is also the word that we, that we use for lust. He lusts, not in a sinful way, but he, he is jealously, does not want to share us with anyone. He doesn't want us to share our hearts with anyone other than him. Peace in the church really is disturbed by um, our relationship to the world when we become friends of the world. And finally, when it when pride takes over instead of humility. Pride and arrogance will always stand in the way of undivided submission to God. Verse 6. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it, is, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this we do know. This is Proverbs 3.34. Let's look at this verse for a minute. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's interesting to me that there is, let me just say, another kind of grace apart from saving grace? Um, Saving grace was unconditional. But there appears to be a grace that God can and does give that is conditional. When he says he's opposed to the proud, but gives grace, what's the condition? He gives grace to the humble. And there's a kind of grace that God wants to extend to us, but it is conditional. Um, conditional upon humility. Boy, what a, what a difficult attribute that is. Humility. Well, he, he, I think he, he, he explains what humility is or how, how we are to... Uh, develop humility, he says in verse 7, the first step is to submit yourself to God. Again, it, it, it strikes me is that he has to tell them that. And, and it, it also tells me that our initial submission is, is not a once-for-all thing, that we have to continually submit ourselves to God, but that also means that we, know we have to resist the devil. And when we resist the devil, he flees from us. There's a whole lot of truth in that one sentence. You think about the concept of him fleeing. We see this, of course, in Ephesians 6. We talk about spiritual warfare. We see it in First Peter when he talks about the devils of roaring lions seeking about someone to devour, standing firm, resisting him. And I take that in the context we resist him through humility and submission to God. It's not speaking to the devil. It's not, it's not calling the devil out that I see so many people on TV do. Um, as Chuck Swindoll once said, there's a word for people who do that. They're called victims. That, that's not what God has taught us to do. That's not what God has modeled for us to do. He has modeled for us to submit ourselves to God through a spirit of humility, and we resist the devil. Verse 8, he says the, these, these imperatives, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. This is... This is Temporal language, but God is 
omnipresent. He's everywhere. So in what sense does he mean to draw near? I, I take that to mean a, a sense of his presence. It, it's, a, it's not necessarily a physical proximity. It's a spiritual proximity. In fact, we do this, he says, through cleansing ourselves. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We draw near to God and he draws near to us. As we cleanse our hearts, we cleanse our hands and he draws near to us. Verse 9, we do it through being miserable and mourning and weeping. Isn't that interesting? So stop being so happy. No, that's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, is, is turn from this frivolous laughter of enjoying and pursuing your pleasures in the world's affections. We, we, again, James draws a lot from Jesus in, 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 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says a very similar thing. Blessed are those who mourn. For they should be comforted. There's a, we are to mourn over our sin. We are to mourn over our lack of humility. We are to mourn over our lack of submission. I, I think what he's saying is, is we, we need to mourn over our true, oftentimes our true nature. And he ends with, every time I read this, I think of that old praise chorus, I guess. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up higher and higher, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself in the presence, the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift us up. He will fill us with joy. He will bestow bestow favor. Now remember, he's talking to churches that are undergoing a great deal of pressure and persecution and oppression. And he says, I want you to experience peace in your body through a humble submission to God. That you get the the war that's raging within you under control. And you experience peace in the body through humble submission to God. I think for us, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Let's be ever vigilant and aware of the war that that wages within us. And the pleasures uh, and the desires within us. Submit ourselves to God. Humble ourselves before Him. Let's pray. Father, oftentimes maybe we aren't even conscious of the war that, that, that rages within us in a, in a desire to fulfill our pleasures and our desires and our lusts. Father, I pray that you would give, grant us great grace. We thank you for the promise, verse 6, that, that there is a grace that... that that you provide for us. And quite frankly, that is conditioned upon humility. That you grant us grace to restrain our passions. That we are to submit to you, that we are to come close to you through cleansing of our heart, cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. Where we are to, to view ourselves rightly and not be so frivolous and, and um, unaware and, and, and a lack of sorrow over our sin. 
Father, that as we humble ourselves before you, you exalt us. You will lift us up. You will fill us with joy. You will bestow favor. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that, well, at this current time, we may not be experiencing that. Again, Father, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So, Father, thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus who died for us, who rose again, who gave us life, who gave us the ultimate example of of humble submission. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?